Well, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19 as we continue our study through the book of Acts. And we come to a fascinating account of a riot that happened in the city of Ephesus during Paul's extended stay there. Remember, he was in Ephesus for about two and a half years. And I'm calling this mob mentality. Gustave Le Bon was a 18th, or rather 19th century uh, French scientist. He studied and wrote about all kinds of uh, scientific fields like anthropology, psychology, sociology, even medicine and physics. He died in 1931, but he wrote a famous book called The Crowd, A Study of the Popular Mind, and that was in 1895. Now, he was not a believer, at least as far as we can tell from his own testimony, but he certainly had a brilliant grasp of the mob mentality. Let me give you a couple of quotes. Laban claims, for example, that an individual immersed for some length of time in a crowd soon finds himself either in consequence of magnetic influence given out by the crowd or some other cause of which we are ignorant in a special state which much resembles the state of fascination in which the hypnotized individual finds himself in the hands of the hypnotizer. He goes on to say, the masses have never thirsted after truth. Certainly true, isn't it? Whoever can supply them with illusions is easily their master. We see that even more so uh, today, some 130 years or so later. And certainly, as we're going to see in the book of Acts, uh, we, this principle goes back 2,000 years. He goes on, whoever attempts to destroy their illusions is always their victim. It reminds me of a cartoon I saw one time. This one sheep says, I don't know where we're going, but from the look of this crowd, it's got to be good. <laughs> Some 1,840 years before Laban made his spectacularly accurate observations, we see a vivid example of this mob mentality in the city of Ephesus in modern-day western Turkey. In Acts chapter 19, Paul's uh, third missionary journey is winding down. It's the late spring of A.D. 56, so the church has been around for some 23 years by now. And he's been, as I said, in Ephesus for two and a half years, and his stay there is coming to a close. Now, we won't read the whole section. We're going to read most of it as we go through, but for the sake of time, I won't read it up front. But let's start with a couple of introductory verses. He says, Luke, the narrator, says, when these things were accomplished. Well, what are these things? He's talking about the account that we looked at a few weeks ago of the seven sons of Sceva when we talked about behind enemy lines and the reality of spiritual warfare and how serious it is and how cautious we should be when we uh, tread where angels fear uh, to tread. So that's what he's talking about. When these things, the whole incident with the seven sons of Sceva and the demon uh, that overpowered them, and they ran out of the house naked, if you remember that story. Uh, when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So this verse 21 here kind of begins the final section of Luke's account of early church history. Uh, we might call it the extension of the church to Rome. And indeed, Paul had not been to Rome yet, but we know he really desperately desired to go there. <clears throat> he was going to go by Jerusalem first, 
check in with the early church leaders and then head uh, to Rome. The events that Luke includes from this verse through the end of the book of Acts span a time from A.D. 56, as I said, which is the time frame where we're at this morning, all the way through 62 uh, A.D. And it was in 62 uh, that Paul was uh, in prison. If you remember, he wrote the prison epistles from about February of 60 to March of 62. So, uh, verse 22, we read on. Uh, so he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia. And it was during this time that this major riot that Luke tells us about took place. Again, A.D. 56. And what I'd like to do is just kind of take a look at this mob scene. It's really a fascinating story with great detail. And Luke, the master historian under the inspiration of the Spirit, is kind of relaying this account, but it, it tells us about the phenomenon of mob mentality. So I'm calling this the, the riot at Ephesus, and I want to kind of look at a, a life cycle of the mob mentality just by drawing some observations from what we see taking place in this historical narrative. Uh, the antagonism that Luke records here was not opposition to Paul personally, but rather in the spiritual realm, it was a reaction to the gospel being expanding uh, to the west and expanded to the west and especially in and around Ephesus. It was called Christianity was called the way at this time. Uh, now individual believers were called Christians and they had been called Christians since the church reached uh, Antioch in Syria where Paul and Barnabas first headed out on their first missionary journey. But it was still collectively called the way and that's what Luke calls it uh, here. And it had such an influence on the Ephesian society that local pagan worship was beginning to suffer. Now can you imagine if the church 2,000 years later today was doing its job, uh, how, how great it would be if we would have an impact on pagan worship? <laughs> you know, how awesome would it be for the, the body of Christ, the, the true local church, the biblical church, standing firm on the authority of God's word, teaching the whole counsel of God, preaching and teaching a clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message were having such an effect that the entire culture said, we're going to shut down Halloween. We're not going to worship Satan on his favorite holiday of the year. We're not going to do that. But no, uh, the church, as Bible predicts, what happened is apostatizing and getting worse and worse, as 2 Timothy uh, 3.13 tells us. And that's why we need Bible-believing uh, churches. But in Ephesus, even though the Christianity was having a profound impact, the reaction of unbelievers and pagan worshipers was very strong and very swift. So let's just walk through this fairly quickly at a good clip and see what I call the life cycle of a mob mentality. And as you can see, it starts with an individual and makes its way into an uncontrollable mob. So that's the first step is it starts with a single individual. It's, it, the mob mentality always starts with one person. Just as God can use a single individual to spread the gospel and start a mighty move of the Holy Spirit, likewise the enemy that we talked about a few weeks ago can use a single individual to foment anger, irrationality, riotous behavior. That's exactly what we see happening in Ephesus. So verse 23, about that time arose a great commotion about the way, Christians. For a certain man, here's that individual, Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, 
brought no small profit to the craftsmen. So there were two goddesses uh, named Artemis in Greek or Diana in Latin that the Gentiles worshipped in the Roman Empire at this time. Uh, now, one of them was Artemis slash Diana, depending on the Greek or the Latin. The other was a, the goddess of the hunt, usually displayed like a young lady with a bow, uh, like going out for the hunt. But the other was this fertility goddess, uh, portrayed as a well-endowed woman, and it was Diana, the fertility goddess, that was especially revered in Ephesus. If I remember my Greek mythology, I think there were 33 statues of Diana throughout the Roman Empire, but the biggest and most notable and, and most famous was the one right there in uh, Ephesus. And uh, this goddess was revered in Ephesus. And so this certain man named uh, Demetrius uh, helped the silversmiths and kind of the, that trade, he was kind of the head of all the silversmiths, uh, make money by creating these small little statues, or in some cases big statues, of Diana and selling them to citizens and visitors and tourists as they came through Ephesus. It was, it was their uh, livelihood. Uh, the, you know, Artemis, or Diana, was considered the patron saint uh, there in Ephesus, and so people would come from all over to, to worship at the false uh, idol there and at the false temple, and they liked to take a souvenir home. And so these silversmiths were makers of, of little silver models which were bought and sold as, as keepsake trinkets. Well, as Christianity spread, interest in Diana or Artemis and, and the market for her statuettes declined. People who came to faith in Jesus Christ, the one true God and the only one who can forgive sin and give eternal life, began to realize the, the nonsensical nature of worshiping an inanimate object. And as believers should do, they began to shun cultural and pagan things. Well, the leader of the guild that made these trinkets was Demetrius. So this single individual with self-serving motives stirred the pot and caused the greatest riot thus far in the history of Christianity. Now we've seen other riots, we've seen other uproars, we've seen people attacking, even going way back, you know, Peter and John or Paul and Barnabas. But this was the biggest, most notable riot to this point in 23 years of Christian uh, history. So here's the key. If you want to stop a riot before it ever begins, if you want to squelch the mob mentality right from the start, be discerning about who you listen to. Because Demetrius was the guy that started this whole thing. And the Bible tells us again and again about how to be cautious of individuals who could lead to great trouble. For example, Proverbs tells us, Go from the presence of a foolish man when you perceive not the lips of knowledge in him. Or Romans 16, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. Notice, contrary to the doctrine. See, there's a time to stand up and speak out and cause a, an uproar for truth, <laughs> But when someone is promoting something that is unbiblical or false or pagan, uh, then you don't want to jump on that bandwagon at all. So the trouble was instigated by this one individual, Demetrius, and it was so bad that Paul later on, and we've talked about this a lot in recent weeks, he wrote 2 Corinthians 
during his third missionary journey, so just weeks after this event would have happened. And, and it was uh, so much trouble that Paul reflected on it, and he said, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia. He's talking about this riot that we're reading about this morning. And he says to the Corinthians, We were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we even despaired of our life. It was a big deal. So after barely escaping the riot at Ephesus, uh, Paul uh, writes back to the Corinthians and says, Hey, I, I want you to remember this. Don't be ignorant of it. So the second thing we notice in the development of a mob mentality then is similar interests. So it starts with a single individual, and, and the instigator of the uproar is usually pretty smart, pretty cunning, and he or she will tap into a common interest in order to energize and provoke the crowd. You know, it's like, hey, c come here, guys. i got to tell you something. You're not going to believe it. Listen to me. And, and for long, people are being drummed up, and that's what Luke tells us happens. This Demetrius calls together the workers of similar op occupation, so similar interest, and he says, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Um, you know, it's funny, the only other protest by Gentiles against the gospel that Luke records in the book of Acts, this historical narrative, also was related to financial loss. If you remember back in Acts chapter 16, on the second missionary journey, Paul and Silas cast a demon out of a young slave girl, and she was a fortune teller. And her masters were using her fortune telling ability, a demonic ability, to bring profit to them. And when Paul cast out the demon from her, she could no longer bring profit, and they were not too happy about it, and so they caused an uproar. Well, here we are six years later after that event, and the profit motive still opposes the spread of the gospel. And by the way, it still does so today. I love uh, what the great wordsmith and theologian J. Vernon McGee said. He said, you cannot step on a man's pocketbook without hearing him say, ouch. And that is certainly true today. More people get involved in false doctrines and false religions out of financial motive than just about anything else. So this... Uh, riotous ringleader was seeking support for his agenda by appealing to those with similar interests. And as I said, this is nothing new. Uh, this kind of tactic is as old as conflict itself. And the Bible tells us it's going to get easier and easier to deceive people into a mob frenzy uh, the closer we get to the return of Christ. Paul says in 2 Timothy, the last letter that he wrote, uh, in, uh, some, uh, in 67 AD, for the time will come uh, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. The word endure there is the Greek word anekamai. It means to be patient. In other words, people will hastily jump to conclusions. And they do this because someone, an instigator, is scratching where they itch. Similar interests. Number three, next comes a spurious incrimination. Once the ringleader has everyone's interest and attention, he reels them in by making unfounded accusations against the target. Listen to what we read. Uh, Demetrius says, Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all of Asia, this Paul, you can almost hear him, say, hear him saying it with derision, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that 
they are not gods that are made with hands. In other words, idols are not gods. I mean, how dare Paul say that? Well, this was a lie. Uh, there, you know, they, they, this was not something that was spreading throughout all of Egypt. There was not this big uproar. It's, it's kind of like when someone says, you know, this is a problem and everybody's talking about it. Well, what they mean is I'm talking about it. It's important to me and I want to get you talking about it, right? So Demetrius' words established the extent to which the gospel had penetrated Asia and had its effect. There's never a stronger testimony than the words of a critic who acknowledges the success of his adversary. But the, the, this was not the case that somehow this was causing everybody to turn in their idols and stuff. Yeah, the gospel was going forth and people were hearing about Jesus throughout the land. But this wasn't a problem anywhere but in this place where the silversmiths made their money off of uh, these idols. But you can always tell when you're striking a chord when you hear the complaints. And I've seen this and learned the hard way throughout 35 years of ministry that, you know, like I said, there's no stronger uh, positive testimony than the words of a critic who is basically acknowledging your success. I can remember one uh, church I was at where one of the elders uh, told me, you care too much about the gospel because we shared the gospel every week. Another church, the, the, uh, the, one of the elders uh, told me, you know, that, J.B., you don't know how to share the gospel with adults because, you know, you came to faith as a child and, and, and now pe nowadays people are adults and, and you get saved a different way and, and you really don't, you, you don't know, you don't have the right to speak about how to evangelize adults because you were saved as a child. That's just typical of the kinds of things that I've heard uh, through the years. Uh, but I take that as a compliment because, uh, you know, when you preach the gospel, the devil is going to, it's going to get his attention. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says Satan is blinding men's hearts to the gospel. That's his goal. He wants to keep people from hearing the saving message of the gospel. How do you get saved? Romans 10, by hearing and believing the gospel. So if people don't hear it, they can't get saved. Uh, so Demetrius was motivated here, not just because he was some sort of pagan, self-righteous guy who honored Diana, the Greek goddess, but more because of financial loss. He just he didn't want his business to suffer. So we see this spurious incrimination. He goes on to say, not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence, magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. In other words, if we don't put a stop to this, they're going to tear down this temple, right? I hardly think that was what the Christians, especially Paul, uh, had in mind as they were preaching the gospel and encouraging people to turn from worthless idols to faith in the one true God. But that's what he was doing. He was spreading false accusations. And false accusations are a serious thing. In fact, the Greek word for accuse is actually used twice at the end of this passage. I'm going to skip ahead there now just because it seems fitting. When the, the city clerk rebukes these pagans uh, for their crazy uh, illogical uproar. Uh, so again, this is the city clerk speaking, and he says, therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open, and they can bring it to the proconsuls. Let them bring charges. That word bring charges is one word in Greek, and kaleo, it means to accuse. Let them accuse, uh, bring an accusation, accuse one another. There. There's a, there's a proper way to do this, in other words. Um, he goes on, 
This is still the city clerk, and he says, But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called into question. Again, that's the English translation of that same word, in kaleo, meaning accused. We are in danger of being accused of starting today's uproar. See, even the city clerk knew this was a wind without rain. I mean, a, a cloud without rain. So, uh, Demetrius is not only making spurious incriminations against Paul, but he's in danger of incriminating himself and anyone who jumps on the bandwagon. Where do these kinds of spurious incriminations, these false accusations, come from? Well, the book of Revelation tells us they come from Satan himself. Remember in Revelation chapter 12, at the midpoint of the tribulation, when things are heating up and getting closer and closer to the return of Christ to establish his kingdom, and the Bible tells us in verse 10, this is in the same context where Satan is cast out of heaven once and for all. He's banished and he can no longer have access to God in heaven uh, for the remainder of his time on earth. And we read, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of Christ of his Christ have come. The accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. See, false accusations are a serious matter. And we need to think before hastily jumping on board. Think before hastily crying out, crucify him, crucify him. Right. Spurious incriminating. And then the fourth step in the life cycle of a mob mentality is spontaneous indignation. Spontaneous indignation. So it starts with one individual targeting those with single interests, followed by a spurious incrimination. And then what? What comes next? Well, there's no critical analysis. People don't look at the facts of the matter and analyze it. There's no reasoned response. There's just this impulsive, spontaneous reaction to the false uh, you know, accusation. And that's what we see, spontaneous indignation. When they heard this, now we're back to Demetrius's false accusations. When the crowd heard this, they were full of wrath. And they cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians, you know reading between the lines, a sense of their saying, may it never be, no one's going to destroy this temple. We love Diana, and let's get rid of this Paul who's trying to destroy this false uh, you know, goddess and just really destroy our pocketbooks. And then you see a surging intensity. We see this in verse 29, a surging intensity. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's traveling companions. See, the temple of Artemis in, in Ephesus was a source of community pride, civic pride to the Ephesians. And the economy was struggling in that day, as we talked about when we first got to Ephesus in our journey. The, the economy was on the downhill slide. It had already peaked and reached its heyday. And it's easy to see how the silversmith's protest would have so quickly aroused popular opposition to the way, to this Christian witness. This was a case of mob violence. See, many of the protesters didn't really even understand what the issue was. Uh, they just saw the crowds. There was a major boulevard through Ephesus, it's still there today, called the Arcadian Way, and it ran from the harbor all the way up to the main theater. And the ringleaders used this artery to collect citizens on their march to the theater. 
it really, the picture I get in my mind is similar to that one I showed earlier of the sheep. It's like they're coming along, and they're beating their drums, they're screaming, great is Diana, and they're get, calling people out of their houses to come join us. And people are like, oh, well, something must be going on. Let's go. I don't know what it is, but it must be big. And so they join the march up to the theater. Archaeologists, by the way, have restored the theater at Ephesus. It seated 25,000 people in 66 rows. It was a semicircular design that was typical of Roman outdoor theaters at that time. But things were quickly getting out of hand. And so then we see a stunning incomprehension, a stunning incomprehension. It's typical in situations where a mob mentality has run amok for people in the crowd to have no idea what the issue at hand is. And Luke tells us in verse 32, some therefore cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. It's uh, been pointed out that this would be a good theme verse for the average Baptist church business meeting. And having been a Baptist pastor, I can attest to that. Uh, there are quite a few uh, YouTube videos uh, that kind of illustrate the scientific studies of how easily people will follow a crowd. And it really is amazing, the the mentality there. And I showed this next video. It's about three minutes or three and a half minutes uh, at a conference I did one time, and I thought it would fit perfectly here. But this illustrates how easily people will follow a crowd. It's not only, this video is not only hilarious, but it's terrifying because it's true. It was a true uh, study. So watch this video. If someone wants to grab the lights for me, uh, this is a hidden camera social experiment that proves uh, that most people are basically sheep. To answer that question, we set up a hidden camera experiment to see if this woman would stand up at the sound of this tone simply because everyone else is. You might be thinking you'd never go along with this. Or would you? just three beats and without knowing why she's doing it this woman is now conforming perfectly to the group but what happens if we take the group away elaine please alone the crowd is gone and nobody is watching her except our hidden cameras what do you think she'll do she's now conforming to the rules of the group without them even being there now watch what happens when we introduce another outsider who doesn't know the rules have a seat and they'll be out in just a couple minutes thanks so much she'll teach the new guy what to do? Mm -hmm. 
kept the cameras rolling as more unsuspecting patients arrived. Surely, what began as a random rule for this woman has now become the social norm for everyone in this waiting room. Here to explain what's going on in their brains is Jonah Berger of the University of Pennsylvania. This sort of internalized form of herd behavior is part of what we call social learning. Starting at a very early age, when we see members of our group perform a task, our brains literally reward us for following in their footsteps. When I saw everybody stand up, I felt like I needed to join them. Otherwise, I'm like excluded. Once I decided to go with it, then I felt much more comfortable. Conformity is how we become socialized, but it can also cause us to develop bad habits or repeat past wrongs. And it's why even this rebel who wasn't standing for any of this nonsense, eventually joined the ranks. And the only thing more shocking than seeing how easily conformity affects the way you act is that similar forces are subconsciously shaping the way you think. Indeed they are. <clears throat> so stunning incomprehension. Do you know why you believe or act the way you do? Have you ever thought about it? Why do you support a particular political agenda or a particular viewpoint? Or are you simply following the crowd? Are you willing to stand alone based on principle? We talked a few weeks ago in our study through the book of Acts about the importance of biblical worldview. So I love this cartoon. Uh, here's the, the black sheep, so to speak. What's, where's that fool going? Why is he going the other way? I'll just ignore him. He's the contrarian in the family. Well, you know what? We need more contrarians. See, most of the people in Ephesus didn't understand the reason for the gathering. They just wanted to go along for the excitement. Everybody else was doing it. Everybody else was standing. So let me uh, do it as well. Returning to the principles that Gustave Le Bon mentioned in his 1895 book, he said, on individuals and crowds, quote, by the mere fact that he forms part of an organized crowd, a man descends several rungs in the ladder of civilization. Isolated, he, he may be a cultivated individual, but in a crowd, he's a barbarian, that is, a creature acting by instinct. He possesses the spontaneity, the violence, the ferocity, and also the enthusiasm and heroism of primitive beings whom he further tends to resemble by the facility with which he allows himself to be impressed by words and images, which would be entirely without action on each of the isolated individuals within the crowd, but then to be induced to commit acts contrary to his most obvious interest and his best known habits simply because of the crowd. He said, quote, an individual in a crowd is a grain of sand amid other grains of sand, which the wind stirs up at will. Well, 50 years before Gustave Le Bon, Charles McKay wrote, extraordinary popular delusions and the madness of crowds. See, people have been studying this forever. And he said famously, and I quote this in my Spirit of the Antichrist book, men, it has been well said, think in herds. 
That's the reason Edward Bernay, known as the father of modern public relations, he was, his uncle, by the way, was Sigmund Freud, a very powerful, uh, influential person in the Luciferian conspiracy to take over the world, first half of the uh, 20th century primarily, especially right after World War II. Um, but he described the masses as, quote, irrational and subject to herd instinct, unquote. He outlined how skilled practitioners who understand the psychology of individuals could use crowd psychology and psychoanalysis, remember his uncle was Freud, to control people in undesirable ways. He said, if we understand the mechanisms and motives of the group mind, it is now possible to control and regiment the masses according to our will without them knowing it in almost every act of our daily lives, whether in the sphere of politics or business, in our social conduct or our ethical thinking, we are dominated by the relatively small number of persons who understand the mental processes and social patterns of the masses. Listen, it is they who pull the wires which control the public mind. He said, quote, men, people, are rarely aware of the real reasons which motivate their actions. See, that's why it really is a battle for the mind, as the Bible tells us. We've got to bring every thought into captivity. We've got to read the Word of God, hide the Word of God in our hearts, be prepared for all that Satan and his demonic realm are throwing our way to, to confuse us according to the traditions of men, as Paul tells us in Colossians. But as we return to the text here, we see this stunning incomprehension. They, they drew Alexander out of the multitude. This is the crowds. The Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. Now Alexander was a leading Jew, unbelieving Jew nonetheless, but a leading Jew who wanted the crowd to understand that even though Paul was a Jew, the local Jewish community didn't approve of him. They were, they were trying, Alexander was trying to say, look, we're not with him. Don't blame us, right? But the crowd's reaction to Alexander showed distinct hostility toward him. Again, further illustrating their irrational, insatiable mob mentality. Stunning incomprehension. This crowd couldn't distinguish between Christianity and Judaism. As far as they were concerned, you know, both faiths were guilty. So they assumed Alexander wanted to defend Paul, who was also a Jew, which of course was not true. But they didn't give him a chance. The whole thing was nonsensical. So when they found out he was a Jew, they all once again cried out in this mob mentality, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Like rabid dogs who won't settle down. Totally out of control. So the life cycle of a mob mentality left to its own devices inevitably ends, we hope anyway, with a shameful indictment against the sheep. A shameful indictment against the sheep. And the life span of a mob is short-lived, or at least we hope it is. Uh, so we come to the end. We read some of these passages a moment ago. But the city clerk finally puts on uh, you know, good reasoning in his thinking cap, and he says, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is a temple guardian of the great goddess Diana, and of the image which fell down from Zeus. In other words, are you all nuts? You really think this Paul is going to bring down the entire city and its centuries-old traditions? Be reasonable, he says. Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet. In other words, calm down. Don't do anything rash. 
For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. And as we read earlier, the clerk really put them in their place. And then Luke sums up the whole affair in verse 41. He says, when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. And I just can't help but wonder what was in the minds of those crowds as they exited the theater. They didn't know why they were there to begin with. They were all drummed up and excited. Their heart rate was going up. Their blood pressure was going up. They thought something big was about to happen. Finally, the city clerk addresses the crowd and says, basically, you guys are silly. You don't even know what you're doing. Calm down and get lost. I mean, how embarrassing would that be, you know? You know, kind of like a Broncos fan headed into the stadium, and then after the game, you're just leaving dejected and depressed. I'm just kidding. I don't even know how the Broncos are. How are the Broncos doing this year? Did they win last week? No. No, I honestly did. I, I know they haven't had that good of a year, but I've been hoping, because I care and I love you, that they would turn around and do better. Oh, really? Yeah. The, the five and two Cowboys that are hopefully going to be six and two today? We'll see. All right, enough. Enough with this shenanigans. So it ends with a shameful indictment. So here's the review. Starts with a single individual. He gathers people with a sim similar interest, makes spurious incriminations, you know, genders up a spontaneous indig indignation with no critical analysis, just people thinking emotionally. Then there's a surging intensity, a stunning incomprehension. Nobody even knows really what's going on, but they're all on the bandwagon, by golly. And then it comes crashing down with a shameful indictment. So I'd like to use the words of Paul as our takeaway this morning. When he wrote back to the Ephesians, four years later, uh, having finally made it to Rome, and sitting in a Roman prison under house arrest, and he writes Ephesians, one of his prison epistles, and he says that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. And I hope that especially in these great last days of deception as we see more and more lies and deceit at every turn, and I address a lot of this in the newest book, that we will hold this verse, take it to heart, and hold it near and dear. We don't want to be tossed to and fro. We want to stand on the rock, stand firm on the truth. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this uh, fascinating story, but one that is just full of great principles that your word teaches us about truth, about the purity of the gospel, about the need for salvation, by grace through faith, about a gospel that will not cower in the face of any pagan or false religion. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. A story about godly men who would stand firm, even in the face of angry mobs. A cautionary tale, Lord, that we too sometimes can be guilty of getting caught up in the emotion of the moment. So, Lord, we pray that this word would go forth, that it would pierce hearts, encourage, convict, reprove, and most of all, if there's anyone within the sound of my voice that is not saved, we pray that today in simple childlike faith they would place their faith in Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior, who died and rose again for their sins. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen.